This is Par for the Course, where two totally average golfers discuss the ups and downs of the golf world and their own golf games. We'll share stories, insights, and our thoughts and opinions, which may or may not be well-informed. Through the good and the bad, though, everything here is par for the course. Welcome in, all you birdie chasers, weekend warriors, golf rage monsters, and even you non-golf enthusiasts. This is another episode of Par for the Course. I am your host, John Webb, and with me as always is my co-host, Andy Proctor. What's going on, my buddy? What up, what up? How you doing? I'm doing great. You know, Wednesday. Another day, another dollar. Another Wednesday, talking about golf. <laughs> That's right. We've got some interesting topics to get to. A um, lot going on in the golf world, believe it or not, on the bifurcation. I'm sure you're well aware of this topic. Mm-hmm. Should be interesting. Um we're actually going to begin today, though, with our favorite segment, PGA Tour, How Did You Score? Cue music. Three, two, one, go! All right, Andy, last week was the Valspar Championship. Did you watch any of it? Not a second. <laughs> Not a single second. <laughs> okay, I had a chance to watch a little, not a little, I watched quite a bit of the final round. Jordan Spieth was in the hunt for the uh, for his first victory of the year, and so I was really tuning in to see how it went. I texted you on Saturday night and said, I have no faith that he's going to pull Oh, through. yeah, and you nailed and it. And I was correct. You nailed it. There's something about him and becoming a choke artist, but anyways. Um, yeah, you kind of you kind of hate for that to become your calling card. But uh, Taylor Moore ended up winning the tournament. The interesting thing about Sunday afternoon was the entire – uh, fourth round or final round, it was basically between Spieth and Adam Shank, is what his name mm-hmm. is. Yeah, who I had never heard of, but they were going back and forth. And Taylor Moore quietly kind of crept up the leaderboard, and Shank and Spieth just had a f- few final bad holes. Yeah, and Taylor Moore ended up winning it. Um, the, the only thing I might have seen, and I don't know, was it on 18 where both Shank and Spieth went off into the trees? Yep, so 18 and both. Uh, Spieth bogeyed. I think Shank did as well. Yeah. Either way, it's just can be yeah. hard to turn for Total disaster. But, so just a reminder, Andy thought uh, top five was going to be Sam Burns, Terrell Hatton, Jason Day, and Patrick Cantley, and Hideki Matsuyama, none of which were in the top five. I'm very sorry. I guess Sam Burns is the winner, Keegan Bradley, K.H. Lee, Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth in top five. So I got a point, which puts me up five for to Jay three Spieth. against Andy. I got to have more faith in Jay Spieth this no. year, at least for top fives, at least. No. You've, you've gotten a few points He's off of Jordan. Be- I mean, his swing is improving. His ball striking's better. I just, there's something about him finishing a, a tournament. Yeah. Anyway. You hate to see it. Hate to see it. But uh, it was a fun tournament. Uh, this week we've got the Dell match play which we're probably not going to do predictions because it's hard to pick a top five or something like this, but definitely going to yeah. tune in and watch. Um, do you do you want to – this would be so low percentage. Hmm. Do you want to just try to pick the winner? The overall winner? The overall winner. That's easy to pick, okay. right? I'm down to and We can still do 10 points for the winner. Yeah. Uh, Tony, Tony Finau. You're saying Tony Finau. Yeah. So I, I, go I love it. my boy. Okay. I'm going to say Scotty Scheffler. Oh, that's a good pick. Yeah. You're probably going to win more points than I would. Uh, We'll see. Yeah, I mean, who knows? He He's obviously best. I think he's number one in the world right now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's a safe pick. 
Okay, awesome. Well, should be a fun week, the Dell match play. Um, I'll be tuning in to see how things go. And, I mean, obviously, I like that they do this during March Madness, too. It's kind of fun to yeah. have that going on at the same time. All right, my friend. Well, as you have probably seen, and all you listeners have also seen, this new um, breaking news on the announcement by the uh, USGA on bifurcation that came out. First and foremost, I want to start out by saying the word bifurcation has been very difficult for me to say. <laughs> John has been struggling. It's like a struggle for me because initially I thought it was bifurcation, but that's not true. Mm, yeah. It's bifurcation. One of the many, words, syllables. One of the many words that you pronounce incorrectly. Don't even get me started. <laughs> so um, I looked it up, the definition of the word, because I was curious. It means the division of something into two branches or parts. Wow. Interesting, right? Riveting stuff. Makes no sense. It does. But um, basically, the context behind this, if you are not aware of what has been going on in the golf world, is the USGA came out and um, proposed a new idea that could potentially start in 2026 where um, professional uh, golfers or elite golfers would have to use a golf ball that doesn't travel as far. Who is defined as an elite golfer? So that is part of the confusion in this uh, release that they put out, is there really hasn't been a set standard as far as who this applies like it's, to. It's pretty vague. It is vague. So you can expect it to happen to professional golfers. So everyone on the Corn Ferry Tour, the European Tour, the PGA Tour, they're going to be affected by this. So wait, so if this comes out from the USGA, though, how would this affect the European tour? The so World that's tour? the other thing is this is what they call a model local rule, which means that professional golf tournaments have the option to apply this rule at their golf course if they so choose. For example, um, if the next year they play a tournament or, you know, in 2026, they play at Torrey Pines, the, you know, the tournament directors have the option to say, you have to use a ball that has been rolled back. Rolled back, exactly. So hmm. it's kind of interesting because it's not. It, they're basically giving the option to these tournament directors um, to, you know, be fun suckers. <laughs> essentially, yes. Gotcha. So the reasoning behind this, from what I've read, is because um, the number one reason I keep seeing is because the golf courses are constantly having to adjust and lengthen their holes which takes more real estate, more water, more money. I mean, it's just a lot that that people have had to adjust to. Um, Each year, the PGA Tour has averaged 4% increase in distance. Every year? Every year. Since when? Since ever. Like every single year, they increase in distance. Part of that is because players are becoming better at swinging the golf club, faster at swinging the golf club. Right. But also technology in the driver and the golf ball is improving, so the distance continues to increase. Wow, that's insane. So, yeah. I I haven't increased <laughs> distance since I was, like, 12. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's been about the same for me, too. Um, so that is the why behind this, is giving tournaments the option to roll back the ball uh, to enforce this rule because they simply are tired of expanding the course. Well, I think it's also, it, really, whether you agree with it or not, I think it, it kind of comes from a responsible place, mm-hmm. right? They're trying to, you know, be responsible about, hey, we're we're not trying to build courses longer. We're not trying to take up real estate that might be useful for people to live on. Or we're trying to be a little more eco-friendly by not spending as much money on watering golf courses and yeah. things like that. Yeah. 
it's really interesting, and I, I can get the sense um, that most people have reacted negatively to this. Yeah. Um, we'll get into the reaction to it in a bit, but just some more context on how this will affect um, these golf ball companies like Titleist or TaylorMade. Um, basically, how they test the balls currently is they have a robot, a golf club swinging robot, and the robot swings a driver. They have Patrick Hantley. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the most boring dude on tour <laughs> might get that award. Um, the robot swings the golf club 120 miles an hour and the golf ball has to either fly or land and roll out no more than 317 yards, give or take three yards. So the, the magic number is 320 yards. So I'm going to nerd out here for a minute, but basically what they're going to do is they're going to increase the robot speed to 127 miles an hour. And the golf ball companies have to conform the ball to that testing to keep it under that 317-yard mark. That's really interesting. Yeah, so basically what it's going to look like is professional players are going to be losing 15 to 20 yards on their drive. Wow, it's a lot. So it is a lot. It is a lot for professionals. Um, I have so many thoughts on this. But I just wanted to get your initial reaction, your take to the announcement of bifurcation. Well, honestly, my <clears throat> excuse me, my first thought mm-hmm. was like my my whole first thought was like, what is this even? What problem is this even solving? I, mm-hmm. When I heard the discussion about rolling the golf the golf ball back, I was like, wait, what? What problem is there with the golf ball? Mm-hmm. Why, what's going on? Yeah, uh, you know, I think you've heard a lot of players talk about this as being. Um, you've heard a lot of players talk about this as being a, a problem, like a made up problem. There yeah. we go. I found my thought, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which I kind of agree with. It's like, I never knew there was an issue with the golf ball going too far and too straight, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was kind of like, Oh, like I, what are we, why are we even talking about this? Is mm-hmm. this, a, is this an issue? Is mm-hmm. this something that we, and, and you know, now that I've been made aware of it and, and that, you know, something like that statistic that you just shared about golfers hitting, you know, as a whole on the tour, hitting the, the golf ball 4% longer every year. Mm-hmm. Sure, that, that, that brings up concerns uh, for things like, you know, uh, you know, being green and taking care of the planet and all those, all those things. But yeah. that just was my, was my thought was, why is this even an issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think the biggest thing that they're trying to solve is golf courses having to lengthen their courses, taking out more real estate. Some golf courses don't have that ability. Like they have the land that they have. They've created right, they're the landlocked. They yeah, they're landlocked. Right. So this is the issue that they are trying to solve. Um, now, the more I was reading about it, the more I realized that this has been a problem for a long time, uh, or at least a worry in the professional golf world that initially when Tiger came on the scene, golf courses had to do what's called Tiger proofing. He was hitting it further what? than anybody. And because he was hitting it so far... Golf courses had to adjust, and this was on a national, almost worldwide scale, that golf courses now had to lengthen their holes mm. because Tiger broke down the barriers of the hitting the ball further, and so golf courses had to adjust to him and all the golfers that came after. Right. So that was just the tip of the iceberg. Nowadays, you look at people like Bryson DeChambeau, right. who are averaging upwards of 350 yards, and some people... Insane. It is insane. It is totally insane that he can hit that far, but... 
Some people are saying that golf is now hyper-focused on distance and you're taking the the beauty of the skill set out of it. Meaning, right. for example, if a player is going to hit, you know, 350 on a par 4, you know, and if the, the par 4 is 450 yards, right. they're 100 yards in. Whereas if you take the ball back 20 more yards, that's two club lengths that right. they're going to have to adjust to. So instead of hitting in, you know, with a sandwich, they have to hit it with a pitching wedge, which right. is a fairly big difference. Yeah, in you're, you're going to see a lot more, you know, mid to high irons. Exactly. Uh, you know, as opposed to seeing driver wedge, driver wedge, driver wedge. Exactly. And so the golf purists are saying they like this because instead of hitting pitching wedge in, they have to eight iron, which means they have to have a higher skill set to shape the ball they want with a higher or a lower lofted club. I would, so agree. I would agree with that's that. That's one side. But could you not also achieve that same aim by saying, let's narrow the fairway a ton mm-hmm. and let's grow the rough yeah. really, really thick mm-hmm. past 300 yards. Yeah. And if you hit the fairway at 320, 330, great. Yeah. Good for you. Mm-hmm. You deserve that wedge in. And if you don't, if you're going to try to play a little more conservatively, uh, you know, try to take like 80% driver or try to take a three wood or something like yeah. that, then you can get some more of those more entertaining shots. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for me, I, I, I don't know. It, as far as entertainment value goes, like, yeah, it is fun to see someone, you know, smash a four iron and have it go 250 or whatever and uh, have it stop on the green. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always fun when you can see them do that. But it, for me, it's also really entertaining to see a guy dialed in from 73 yards mm-hmm. and like, you know, playing darts. Yeah, that's, no, I agree. For me, that's really entertaining still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think these golf purists may not take into account that I cannot remember off the top of my head the statistic, but hitting like a 60 degree or a sandwich 56 degree, the average of getting that ball within five to 10 feet for professionals is not that high. No, it's not. It's not that high. And so it, I don't think that you're taking out the skill set just by saying, um, you know, if they have to hit eight iron, it, per, it requires more skill. I don't think that that holds water personally. Yeah. Um, I agree with your take, though. My thing was um, I, I love watching people bomb it off the tee, first and foremost, and I think everyone would agree with that. Right. Um, and I think you're right. I think tournaments can adjust by lengthening the rough, so it penalizes you if you're not hitting it straight. Um, right. I think that's a solution. Um, but there are courses like St. Andrews, for example, they don't have any more real estate, and so they don't also have that option to kind of like lengthen their rough, quote unquote. So St. Andrews is a good example where they can't lengthen anymore. This this rule would really apply to them because it's such a short course. I mean, you look right. at um, eighteen at St. Andrews; most professionals can drive the green. Right. Um, so it's an interesting thing. I, I saw a quote um, from somebody who said, "This feels like a solution searching for a problem." It feels like yeah. it's premature. It That's feels how like, I feel. yeah, it feels like there really isn't as big of an issue as people may think. Um, but it, according to the trends that we've been seeing with golf, like this, the distance that professionals can hit is not going to go away. It's going to continue right. to increase. So at some point, something has you've to got change. To, you've got to do something. Yeah. Right. And so the idea is, like, what is that solution? And I think, I'm not the one to charge, but I think what you just mentioned. Instead of taking distance off the ball, you you really need to penalize these players for not hitting it 
accurately at the right. distance. Right. The, and and if you if it, say you have a place like St. Andrews, right? Mm-hmm. Where, well, you know, I guess it really depends on the ecology of the course that you're playing mm-hmm. at, right? You know, you don't see a whole lot of trees at St. Right. Andrews. But if you have a course that is unable to make changes like lengthening your rough or narrowing your fairway or whatever it is, there are always other obstacles, um, you know, water features, bunkers, trees, things you can put into place to penalize players who try to play the long game and are not accurate enough uh, to put it in the fairway. Um, Another point that I thought was interesting that I saw from John Rahm Mm -hmm. In his interview uh, earlier this week, really, when you look at it, who does bifurcation hurt the most? It does not hurt the long hitters mm. on the tour. Mm-hmm. That's a great it, point. It penalizes the shorter hitters. Yeah. Because the guys that are hitting longer on the tour, great. Okay, Bryson did, well, I guess not Bryson DeChambeau, but, you know, players that are averaging their drives are 320, 325, mm-hmm. as opposed to three or, you know, 310, you know, those guys are still going to have. Uh, like you said, a pitching wedge or a nine iron in. Yep. And then the guys that don't hit very long, I mean, like if Tiger tries to come back and, and, and win a major, mm-hmm. and he's he doesn't hit as far off the tee anymore, um, and he, he can't swing his wedges as hard as he used to as a, as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to have a you know, six iron, seven iron in. Yeah. Compared to some of these guys that are hitting nine iron in. For sure. Um, and so that's, that's why I like the idea of changing the structure of the hole, not as far as length goes, but, um, you know, changing the, the shape of the hole, changing the, the features on the hole, because you can pattern those features f- from the green back out mm-hmm. to, like, like again, like a, again the hole. yeah, like I said, like it, it penalizes those players sure. that attempt to hit long mm-hmm. and sacrifice accuracy for distance. Yep. Um, and then it, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't reward, but it, it makes it more appealing to attempt to have maybe a little bit of a shorter tee shot and have a better, you know, landing zone at maybe 280, 290. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and there are courses that will or design it where the there will be a fairway bunker that's at like the 290 level, like you just mentioned. Yeah. And that to me is a great idea because you're really forcing the player to think, do I take driver or not? It's like how every course we play has bunkers right at like 240, 250 exactly. for me, which is just perfect. That is like a death <laughs> sentence for me. If yeah. I'm in a fairway bunker and I'm like 240 out, no way I'm parring that hole. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah. So it is interesting. I think another thing that people don't like is that amateurs like you and I get to play the same equipment that professionals do. Yeah. Um, and if they were to take that away, then it kind of takes away from the beauty of golf that like I'm using the same driver as Tiger Woods. I'm using the same ball yeah. as Jordan Spieth, right? I, I would almost be more down if they rolled the ball back for everyone. Which is another thing. Like, if you're going to do this, go all in. That's what people are saying is, if yeah. you're going to really make this change, don't make it a bifurcation. Make it applicable to every golfer in the world. Yeah. And, if and it, you know, it, it's hard to swallow that idea as mm-hmm. an amateur golfer who, you know, on a good day, I maybe drive it 290. Exactly. You know? And we're in Utah. And we're, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're 4,000 feet higher in elevation than they are. Exactly. Um, but if the day really comes where they say, hey, this is becoming a problem, like yeah. really, truly a problem, yeah, roll it back for everyone. 
Because exactly. for me, as a golfer, it's more valuable to be able to say, oh, you know, so-and-so hits it, you know, 340 at 4,000 feet elevation. Yeah. And I hit it 290, mm-hmm. whatever. That's that's more entertaining for me as a golfer. Yeah. To be able to compare myself to the pros versus saying, oh, I flip, I don't know, the ball that he hits at sea level, he hits it, you know, 310. Mm-hmm. And I hit it 290 at, you know, it's just confusing. It is confusing. And I think... Um, I think we've come up with, uh, I think is a good solution. Now I haven't really researched, have other people thought about doing it that way? I'm sure they have, but, um, at some point though, you have to think that like in the next, I don't know, 50 years, hundred years, golf needs to make an adjustment because if it continues to lengthen, yeah. then something has to be done. But I don't think now is the time. So where into this conversation do you think? the advancement of technology comes in. That's another good point, because you could say instead of targeting the ball, let's target the driver. Right. Like, let's target what's hitting the ball in the first place. And I think, again, I, I don't think right now is the time, but down the line, yeah. I think drivers are becoming so sophisticated and so aerodynamic. Even players like you and me hitting 300, when 10 or 20 years ago, that was pretty unheard Not of. doable, Yeah. yeah. And it, it kind of makes, I remember thinking back to uh, the conversation with Phil Mickelson uh, about the tour of uh, limiting driver shaft lengths. Exactly. I remember thinking, like, oh, that's kind of lame. Like, you know, just let, let them swing if they want to swing. If they mm-hmm. want to try to be more accurate with a longer club head, or excuse me, if they want to try to hit longer mm-hmm. with a, a longer uh, club shaft yeah. and have to try to be accurate with that longer shaft, then, like, let them do it, you know? Mm-hmm. But now with this conversation, it's like, well, you know, maybe we do need to put some limits in place on the technology that's being placed out there so that, I mean, I mean really, why do we need the game? Why, why do we need to hit longer? Right. Like, I, I think it's plenty to have it the way it is now. It's fun to have it the way it is now. Yeah. But I, I can't see myself thinking, man, you know, if I could really drive the ball 320, and keep on shanking my irons. That'd be really fun. <laughs> It'd be so fun. Like, dude, if, no, if, I you, agree. if you could trade me off and say, I promise you, you will stripe your approach shot, mm-hmm. but you can drive it 260 max, I'd be like, fine. I'd take that. I would take 10 it. 10 times out of 10. And a heartbeat, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, you know, golfers, whether you're professional golfers or amateur golfers, like, yeah. You do not need to be so hyper focused on distance, yeah. per se. You know, work on other things in the game. That being said, I think the idea of bifurcation is a travesty. Yeah, and you mentioned um, equipment. Titleist came out and strongly disagreed with this. I saw I saw a similar post from TaylorMade. TaylorMade as well. Yeah, they they both came out and said we do not agree with this because. It does affect them in a way that they would now have to create two separate golf. Yeah, like production costs. Production costs go, go up. up. R and D, like they have to go back to the drawing board. Like there's just a lot that goes into it. And I think there's more to this proposal and the uh, repercussion potential repercussions than I think people realize. Um, yeah. With especially with the equipment, um, but player wise, I would say the majority do not agree with it either. For example, uh, there's a quote by. DeChambeau, I mean, our longest hitter in the golf world. Right. He says, I think it is the most atrocious thing that you could possibly do to the game of golf. 
it's not about rolling golf balls back. It's about making golf courses more difficult. Like we said, for one, we, we agreed with the shampoo. Wow, Bryson, way to go, I dude. I could ever agree with him on anything, ever. I also agree with him with his uh, dimple no. putting. No, no, <laughs> no. That's real, John. It, no. <laughs> anyway, he went on to say, I think it's the most unimaginative, uninspiring, game-cutting thing you could do. Everyone wants to see people hit it farther. That's part of the reason why a lot of people like what I do. Shameless plug there. Yeah. Uh, JT said, my reaction was disappointed and also not surprised, to be honest. I think the USGA over the years has, in my eyes, it's harsh, but made some pretty selfish decisions. They definitely, in my mind, have done a lot of things that aren't for the betterment of the game, although they claim it. Wow. That's a pretty strong statement. That was JT? JT? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. And so, I mean, John Rom said, like, why, why are they trying to fix something that's not broken? Yeah. That's another reaction that, that came out. Yeah. So overall, Great I points. would say it's more negative than positive. Yeah. Yeah, I like I said, my first reaction was like, wait, what? What yeah. what are we fixing? I know when I when I saw the word I was like, first of all, what does that mean? <laughs> How do you say it? Do you, do you know do you know <laughs> the feeling I had when someone brought this subject to my attention? What? It's that feeling when your your significant other, your either your wife and your girlfriend. Uh-huh. You're you're like you're thinking you're on cloud 9, things are going great. And they're like, <clears throat> can we talk? <laughs> and you know it's a and serious like, conversation. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, what happened? And they, they start talking to you about like, I don't know if you've noticed, but like this thing or that thing. And you're like, I didn't even know. Didn't even consider that was a there a, is there? I didn't know there was a problem. Yeah. I That's agree. how I felt. For sure. So anyway, I think um, at the end of the day, I, I hope this doesn't happen because it will drastically change golf. Like it's not yeah. going to be as fun to watch players only hit at average, you know, three hundred, three ten. I would say maybe the one thing, if I had to find a silver lining in it, mm-hmm. it would be that if the players that we are watching now are starting to hit it. 310, mm-hmm. 320 instead of three. Even then, that's that's still pretty long. Yeah, if they're hitting at two ninety. Yeah, three hundred. That makes it easier for me. To, it's it's almost like the difference in the golf ball represents the difference in skill level. Mm-hmm. So if they can, if the, if I can see them and say, oh hey, they're driving at two ninety. Yeah. Then for me to say, oh I'm driving at two ninety. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. Yeah. But they're still in the back of your head. You're like, well, exactly. different golf ball, but also they spend 60 hours a week doing this. Yeah. No, I agree. Also, side tangent, do you want to explain to the listeners what you're talking about, the golf ball dimple quote by DeChambeau? Oh. Real quick. Yes. So, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, if, if you haven't... He is our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute favorite player <laughs> on the Live Tour. Um, you can YouTube this, but he explains... Uh, his his rationale of making sure that when you are lining up your putt, that you line up your golf ball to the dimple, because if you hit your putt on a different part of the dimple, it's going to cause enough variation for you to miss your putt, which is... Complete buffoonery. It's asinine. It really is. And it is the epitome of overthinking yeah. golf. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I am certainly... You know, John and I differ in a lot of ways when it comes to golf. Like, I... I am kind of scientific about it. Not scientific. Yeah. I'm just methodical. Mm-hmm. You know, I judge my putting distance or, or my putting speed by the, the depth of my backstroke. Sure. Right? And, like, I, I you know, people are going to be annoyed, but I pace out my putts. Yeah. 
I like aim point putting, which if you don't know what that is, go figure it out so I don't get sued. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and John is like totally feel. Yeah, hundred percent. I'll ask John. Like we'll be we will have the exact same putt. Yeah. And I'll ask I'll ask you like what's the distance on this and you're like I have no couldn't idea. Couldn't tell you. Couldn't yeah no idea. Mm-mm. And I have to know like to the foot. Yeah, but you I would not consider you at all in the same ballpark as which DeChambeau. goes to show how yeah just he's yeah, out there completely nuts anyway, his level of we should digress or we could go down a rabbit hole that would last yeah. for a very long time. Last thing we want to talk about today is something that uh, Annie and I both have talked about at length before and that has to do more towards the amateurs that are listening basically everyone listening to this podcast i don't know john ron might benefit from this conversation oh that's true (laughs) that's a good point what we want to talk about is how staying calm or cool and collected during a round uh is vitally important and how we do that now let me preface this by saying I am not nearly as good at this as Andy is. I <laughs> tend to swear on the golf course. I tend to get frustrated. Um, You've sworn before? I have. Wh- wow. Yes, I have wow. indeed. Shocker. <laughs> um, to me, swearing on the golf course doesn't count. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> but um, I would love you to start and tell the listeners how you stay calm during a round when things aren't going your way. Well, number one, I have a lot of practice. Okay. <laughs> Things don't go my way a lot of the time. <laughs> and so... I, You're not I would, giving yourself enough credit on I, that one. I would say, <laughs> I would say that I have a, a lot of practice at this. No. Um, you know, I, I think it's different for everybody. You know, uh, obviously everyone expresses their frustration differently. Some people... I like to swear and get mad and get angry. Uh, some people uh, like to, you know, self-deprecate. Terrell yeah. Hatton is a hilarious example of that. Yeah. Some people go silent, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I think it's taken a lot of years of golfing to understand how I, because I do think it's healthy to mm-hmm. get angry when you're playing poorly. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it's helpful at all. Or, or realistic. I think it's out of touch with reality mm-hmm. to tell yourself that everything's going fine and everything's, you know, sunshine and daisies and buttermellow. Sure. Got to be realistic. When you're playing poorly. Yeah. And so I think it's all about finding a healthy way to allow yourself to get into that angry mindset. But you find all the best golfers talk about uh, having a short memory, right? Mm-hmm. Forgetting and, it. And so um, I think I've had a lot of different sources that have kind of led me to find my way to sulk on the golf course yeah. while still maintaining uh, a good mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, the num- number one thing that I have striven to uh, emulate my entire life is uh, a good buddy of mine that you, you actually know uh, growing up. Uh, in Park City, Utah, I was friends with a, a guy named Searle. Shout out to Searle. Searle Vincent. Hello, Searle, if Good you're listening man. to this. Uh, Searle and his brothers uh, were about the same age as me and, and my brother mm-hmm. uh, growing up. And we, we all played football together. Yeah. And I don't know that I that I ever once saw any of the Vincent boys. Uh, they would talk trash, like for fun. Mm-hmm. But they would when they were getting beaten in a basketball or football game or anything like that, they were just, man, I never saw them swear. Level-headed. I never saw them get angry. So I had an example mm-hmm. that that was a really great example to me. 
of seeing people who were able to be really competitive yeah and and play with a lot of intensity and mm-hmm. and uh, you know just be really really athletic and, and good at their sport but also be able to internalize their frustration sure and to be able to channel that frustration into increased focus and intensity uh, you know in the next part of the game or whatever mm-hmm. so that was an example I had going forward uh, from when I was a kid um, and and then honestly the pros you look at the pros and the, the sometimes the PGA tour is frustrating to watch because it's it's like like for example cam Smith when he was still on tour yeah what an electric golfer but like his golf like his golf and his personality could not be they don't match more of an antithesis at all like he's such an exciting player to watch because mm-hmm. he does amazing things yeah I mean he could double eagle mm. and like maybe crack a smile. I remember like at the open, he had that huge putt in the final round. It was like yeah. 40, 50 feet. Didn't, no Didn't fist even pump, smile. not a thing. Just blew my mind. I was kind of mad. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And so I, you know, I think that PGA players and, and amateur golfers alike should embrace the celebratory aspect mm-hmm. of, of that kind of the emotional spectrum, right? Like if you hit a great putt or you hit a great drive, like you should celebrate for sure. Um, but on the other side, you mm-hmm. look at how little reaction you get from a PGA player mm-hmm. when something goes poorly. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, they're so good at controlling their emotions. Sure. So I just always think, you know, like, hey, if I want to, if I want to, you know, I'm not, not under any imagination that I'm going to play like a PGA player. Sure. But if I want to be like a PGA player, mm-hmm. I have to act. Yeah. For like sure, a PGA player. Yeah, no, I I agree completely. Now, again, my comments are with the caveat that I struggle with this at times. Um, the number one thought that gets in my way during a round that makes me the most angry is when I hit a shank or I hook another drive. Ooh, yeah. The number one thing that comes to my mind is I have been playing this sport for so long. I've practiced so many hours. I've spent so much money. How is this still happening? Like this mm. should not be happening, mm. right? So that's the thought that, that gets me every time. Um, and so I have to really focus on when those things happen, my initial reaction has to be, it's fine, it's okay. Yeah. Um, when I do that, I tend to have a more enjoyable round. Now, the other side of it as well is I, I like to be someone who's fun to golf with. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's an important part for people like us, who amateurs who go play you know, weekend warriors, like, if you're somebody who's just a rage monster every weekend, I'm not going to want to golf with you. You, you know what I, I mean? You and I had that experience. So for those of you that don't know John or myself, we went to college together mm-hmm. um, at Brigham Young University in, in Provo, Utah. And there's a small course down there. It used to be called... East Bay. East Bay mm-hmm. Golf Course. I think it's now called Timpanogos mm-hmm. Golf Club. Mm-hmm. Timpanogos Golf Course. Yep. Anyway, we were we were playing around there, and it was one of those holes where we, we were pulling up to, to one tee box that was adjacent to another tee box. Yeah, close to the other one. And there there was a gentleman there, a gen- with his gen- son. A gen- yeah, there was. A, we'll, call I remember. The, we'll call the dad a gentleman, and his son, the, the little like gentleman, gentleman, mini, mini, yeah, mini <laughs> gentleman. And then there was how to describe him uh, a buffoon. Um, Just. Anger management candidate. Yeah. Just uh, <laughs> total rage monster. Like, he went off. He hit, he hit his drive, and it sliced. 
and he lost his mind. Yeah, he was he was saying things that I can't repeat. Yeah. So things I would never repeat. And that's a good example, right? Like that's not a person you want to golf with and I don't consider myself that. Yeah. So that's the other aspect that helps me at times is like, okay, like at the end of the day, this doesn't matter in life, right? right. Like I'm not a professional. Right. Um, I think for myself, I'm a natural competitive person. And so I'm competing against myself in golf, which is such a unique perspective that we should definitely touch on on another episode. But right. like that aspect is what gets me going. Um, and so it's finding that balance of like enjoying your time with your buddies with, you know, a, a Dr. Pepper and tons of candy and chips and stuff. Snacks. But also playing a good round and playing good golf. Like, yeah. that's what I strive for. And so sometimes I get too much on the, the ladder where I'm, like, not playing well and I want to play well to improve right. my handicap. Right. So I think th- the biggest takeaway for me is to just try and catch these um, bad shots right from the get-go and just try and have a positive thought Yeah, right on the onset. Well, and you mentioned two things there. Number one, snacks. Gosh, mm. snacks are so helpful. So important. So great. So like a bad shot, you just sit in your cart, take a swig of Dr. Pepper. Life's good. It's so good. Um, good. And then number two, I I think it was actually you that sent a message to, um, again, for those of you listeners that haven't listened to other episodes before, maybe are new to to John and I as as co-hosts of this podcast, Mm. we um, are associated with a a golf tour called the Wasatch Golf Tour here in Utah. Shout out to Wasatch Tour. And, uh, you know, there are three or four of us that started this tour together, and we, we have a little chat group. And you sent a, I think it was a, a message on Instagram, mm-hmm. a, a post from Instagram from uh, those of you that are familiar with John Sherman mm-hmm. um, from uh, Practical Golf. Yeah. Uh, he, he shared some statistics about, um, you know, the, the likelihood that a, a professional golfer, uh, you know, what, what their proximity to the hole is from... 50 yards out, mm-hmm. 75 yards out, 100 yards out. Yep. Um, what's a normal dispersion pattern for a golfer on the PGA Tour? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have all these perceptions as amateur golfers that it's that professional golfers are way more accurate than they really are. You mentioned this earlier in, the, mm-hmm. in this episode. Um, and it's just not true. Yeah. When you look at the statistics from the tour – you look at, at their um, their bunker play around mm-hmm. the green. You look at their play from 100 yards in. You look at their play from the tee on par threes. Mm-hmm. You look at their play from the tee on par fours and par fives, and they are just not – I mean, they are incredible at what they do. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, from, from you know 10 out of 10 shots, we imagine these, these players are hitting – seven, eight, or nine out of these ten shots exactly the way they want them to. Sure. And it's just not the case. And so I think becoming a little bit more familiar with those types of statistics and um, adjusting my expectations to mm-hmm. the game as to what like you mentioned this earlier about, like, man, I've been playing this game for, you know, a dozen years. I should not be hitting shots like this anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, let's adjust our expectations as to what is a really good golf shot, mm-hmm. you know? Um and I think that as well just helps you manage. Okay, wasn't that shot didn't go where I was aimed, uh, but you know what? I can still get up and down for sure. Or you know what? Like yeah, I I blocked my drive right, but at least I'm not ob. Yeah. You know, I think stuff like that helps a lot with just having a, a better understanding of what is a good golf shot, mm-hmm. and a better understanding of what, how common is it for 
a professional golfer to hit that shot? How common is it for an amateur golfer to hit that shot? And um, yeah, just factor that into your your how your round is going. Yeah, and I think knowing that and those statistics does make you feel a little bit better because, like, you know, the average PGA Tour player does the same thing, so it's okay. Yeah, everyone's exactly. Fine. At the end of the day, it really comes down to we just shouldn't take ourselves. I shouldn't take myself as seriously as, mm-hmm. as I do sometimes. Yeah. So, anyway. Interesting thoughts, but uh, at the end of the day, it's getting closer to springtime, and we're excited to go golfing. So. Oh, my gosh. If it snows one more time, yeah, I might have to move back to Arizona. Anyway. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm John Webb. And I'm Andy Proctor. And everything here has been Par for the Course. Have a good week. Hey, all you listeners, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Par for the Course. If you liked the episode, please give us a good review or a follow on this episode wherever you get your podcasts. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much.